I got married to a wonderful woman. We're still married and have wonderful uh, life together after 50 years. Um, and I had three beautiful children, all healthy. My career was going well, uh, but I was terrified all the time. Uh, angry when I came home, angry when I woke up, angry driving to work. So just a, a constant level of fear um, and anger. There, there was a, a day, I literally remember the day when I decided, okay, I've, I've, I've got I've to do something different. And that, that's when I initially sought out therapy. It was probably a year later that I met Dr. Hamilton. When I was three, I had polio. I was paralyzed. I think uh, I was unable to walk and I was unable to talk and I was unable to swallow. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month we feature a patient interview, case presentation, or interview or discussion with one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We're interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at orgonomy.org. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. If you're interested in training with the ACO, you can learn more about the medical orgone therapy or social ergonomy training programs. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org. This episode features an interview with a patient who tells me about his story and his treatment in medical orgone therapy. For privacy, we change the patient's and therapist's names. Listen in to hear how David sought treatment for his anger and anxiety at a crucial moment in his life and how his therapy helped him, but also went beyond these problems touching every aspect of his life. David, I really appreciate your time to talk with me today to help the audience see your perspective about medical orgone therapy. So I wonder if you could just start and tell us, how did you end up in medical orgone therapy? What was it that you were dealing with that made you seek treatment? Well, uh, this was a long time ago, but I still remember it uh, pretty well. Um, I was in my 30s, uh, family, uh, professional career, um, pretty much everything that I could have hoped for in life, and I was miserable. Um, I was afraid, angry, um, not getting much pleasure out of any aspect of my life. And it was pretty clear that if I didn't do something different, um, my life would not go on a path that I wanted it to. Mm. Um, and so I immediately uh, uh, sought treatment. I was not uh, able to start my therapy with medical ergonomy. Um, quite ac actually, that happened quite by accident. Um, I was referred to uh, Dr. Hamilton and went to see him, and we agreed to work together. 
And it was probably a, a year or two into my therapy that he brought up a different way uh, to do therapy. Uh, so mm -hmm. it was, in my case, not something I sought out, but uh, a very happy accident. So you, you met Dr. Hamilton and he described this different approach of therapy and, and from there that's how you got into it. Yes, um, and I will say the, the my initial, um, I don't know, year or two, it was very difficult for me. Um, I don't know how it is for other patients, um, but it was clear that I had a connection with uh, Dr. Hamilton and I somehow just decided to trust him, even though it was um, terrifying, um, not the therapy, but my reaction to it, meaning my, my path was one uh, that was pretty frightening. I see. Uh, and it took a while before there were some signs that um, things were going to improve. Um, but I just stuck it out because I knew that if I didn't, uh, the life that I had hoped to live was going to fall apart uh, in one way or another. David, if I'm hearing you correctly, initially, it sounded like you just had your trust with Dr. Hamilton to help you go forward in, in terms of really dealing with the difficulties that you were facing. Is that right? Yes. Um, and I, I remember that it, it once we started, uh, once I started medical orgone therapy with him in his, uh, he, he had two rooms in his office uh, in a uh, inner room. Um, it was, the therapy was much more difficult for me. Now I understand why, but back then I didn't understand why it was more difficult than it had been where he was sitting at his desk and I was sitting in a sofa and we were uh, talking to each other as if we were, you know, uh, friends, sort of. I see. Uh, so the medical ergonomy therapy immediately w was a different, uh, different approach, different room, different setup. Uh, my real physical relationship relative to him, that changed. And you're referring to, you know, initially you were sitting up face to face, how, how many um, people would imagine traditional talk therapy, and then you're talking about lying down on the therapy couch? That's correct. And there's two things about what you said that I, I'm curious to hear more about. One, um, was there something that happened that allowed you to trust Dr. Hamilton with something that was so terrifying for you to, to the extent that you feel comfortable talking about it? And then I was also curious if the reason you sought therapy came up suddenly in your 30s or it was there and you were aware of it and something kept you from addressing it. So you may have to remind me of the second uh, sure. part to that question. Um, I had just left a therapist who uh, was the head of a clinic and refused to cancel, refused to silence his phone in the middle of my sessions. 
And so he'd take phone calls in the middle of my sessions. Mm. And that didn't last long. And I said, sorry, if you're not willing to spend your time with me, I'm not going to spend my time with you. And so that's how I got Dr. Hamilton's referral from this physician. Um, and there must have been some something deep inside of me that sensed I could trust uh, Dr. Hamilton. It, it just stood out to me. I mean, you use the word terrifying more than once. And so to trust someone to deal with something so powerful and so intense, I would imagine you'd, you'd have to feel it on a deep level to, to go forward in that kind of work. As, as deeply as I could at the time, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I understand what it was that enabled me to uh, work with Dr. Hamilton and be confident that I that it was safe. I now know that throughout our entire history of therapy, I was afraid he would either criticize me, make fun of me, get mad at me, or punish me, or leave me. Mm. And those are things that were part of my character uh, and related to my parents, my wife, my children, my friends. You know, these were fears that I've had much of my life. And it was after some time of being in medical, medical organ therapy with Dr. Hamilton that I recognized intuitively he could handle whatever my emotion was, however strong it was, whether I was furious with him or afraid of being punished or angry and, and expressing my anger physically through hitting, uh, you know, this, this uh, sort of karate bag that he would hold, um, that I, he never once punished me, got angry with me, <laughs> left me, made fun of me. And uh, so internally, I had the experience over and over again that no matter what I did, he could tolerate my emotions and whatever I had to say. He, he accepted you. He accepted me as I was. And, yeah. you know, at that point in time, I didn't have anybody in my life who did that for me. Wow. And That's it was powerful. very powerful. Yes. So the, the, the second part of your question, I think, was basically what was there something that happened? Is that? Yes. You, you said that you sought therapy. I think you said you were in your 30s. You had a family. You had a career. Um, were you aware that there was a problem going on leading up to your 30s and seeking treatment? Or is it just suddenly you became aware of it? How did that happen? So. I, I got married to a wonderful woman. We're still married and have a wonderful uh, life together after 50 years. Um, and I had three beautiful children, all healthy. And um, my career was going well. 
but I was terrified all the time, uh, angry when I came home, angry when I woke up, angry driving to work. Um, I, I had what I think at the time would have been called um, you know, a spastic colon or, or um, irritable bowel, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh-huh. And uh, so there were problems with my emotions, uh, problems with my relationships with my children and my wife, um, uh, terrible anxiety uh, that was at its worst probably while I was driving to work. Uh, and then uh, constantly afraid at work. So just a a constant level of fear um, and anger that had been going on for some time, uh, maybe building over a five-year period. And there there was a a day, I literally remember the day when I decided, okay, I've got to do something different. and that, that's when I initially sought out therapy. It was probably a year later that I met Dr. Hamilton. I see. And so I'm curious to hear more about your experience in therapy. I, I'm not, again, there's, uh, <laughs> I laugh a little bit at myself thinking, now why the hell have I stuck with it all these years? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm still in therapy. Um, and the simple answer is the problems that I had were chronic. I now see I'm 70, over 70 years old, and I still have the same problems that I had when I was 30-ish. Um, but back then, they dominated my life. Um, now I dominate them. I, I can relegate them those problems, the fear, the anxiety, to a therapy session and enjoy the rest of my life. Um, not 100%, but compared to back when I was 35, there's no comparison of uh, how much pleasure I got out of life today compared to, to back then. That's so wonderful to hear. So the the... There was a pattern that developed uh, between Dr. Hamilton and myself where I would come into therapy, lie down on the treatment couch. I would bring a Walkman back in the day, headphones, and I had three songs that I would play to myself. And as soon as I'd start to play them, I'd start to cry and cry hard. And, you know, these are three-minute songs, so a good 10 minutes of of sobbing. Um, And then often uh, the crying would subside a little bit, and Dr. Hamilton would come and apply pressure with a thumb or a knuckle um, at my jaw, or I'm not sure what these muscles around my neck are called, but he, he, he clearly could see what I couldn't, meaning I didn't know these muscles were uh, tight. I think the word one would use is spastic, but he could see that they were tight and he didn't didn't go looking for them. He would come across the room, apply pressure, 
with my permission and my understanding. And I would, at the beginning, you know, he, he decided how hard to push or how long, um, and the muscle would let go at some point, and it would trigger uh, a flood of emotions for me. And um, it took a while for me to get comfortable with the fact that that was part of the treatment. Um, and at, at, after some period of time, I would always, or I would become aware that after the trigger and after the expression of the emotion, whether it was sobbing, screaming, being terrified, being angry, um, I would feel some relief. Sometimes the relief would last five minutes. <laughs> Sometimes it would last uh, five hours. Um, but early on, the relief was not, the relief didn't last until the next appointment. <laughs> uh, it was short-lived. I see. Um, and um, so, so the, this was the initial form of therapy with Dr. Hamilton. After uh, after a number of years, and whether it was five or ten, I've I've lost track in my mind. I would still come in and listen to the music, and then I would stop the music, and I'd say to Dr. Hamilton, "Please push here." I I knew where I needed him to push. You were learning through your therapy with him, him directing it, becoming more aware of feeling it. And, and being aware of, of the tension? Correct. Um, and this was, I'm sure, well, I mean, today, um, I, I shouldn't talk about today. As you know, I'm recovering from surgery. So my, my body's not in its normal state. <laughs> hasn't been for a couple of months. But, um, yeah, there were muscles in, in my jaw, in, above my eyebrows, on the top of my head, the back of my head, my neck, uh, my abdomen, my intercostal muscles. Um, those are the particular locations on working with me that Dr. Hamilton would use to trigger my emotions so that they would come up and hopefully out, i.e. I could discharge them, get the get the feeling outside of me yes. um, and then you, you the way you phrased it was interesting that I learned from him how to tell oh that muscle's tight it needs uh, if I relieve that tension there will be a flood of emotion that comes with it and I'll feel better or maybe you even felt a feeling that you needed to express and you knew that these muscles tended to hold back crying or screaming or that, that experience can happen sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I what you just said is true today, but I've, I've, I've got an awful lot of experience now. I see. Yes. Back then, uh, I didn't really understand. There were moments... Uh, 
uh, as I say, initially, maybe it's only a short window. Maybe it's a half hour drive to my office where I felt good. I wasn't afraid. Um, then I'd walk into my office and the fear would come back. So um, it took a long time, in my case, for the relief to last longer than the interval between therapy appointments. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I worked with Dr. Hamilton for a long time until he retired. Um, and then with his uh, concurrence, I have a new ergonomist that I've been working with now for, uh, I think, three and a half, four years. Um, and I anticipate working with an ergonomist for the rest of my life. I, I remember the day that Dr. Hamilton, I, I, was, I, I was very upset. This was probably in my 50s. I was very upset that, God damn it, I've been in this therapy now for a long time. When am, when, when am I going to be done? And, and in a very tactful way, he basically said, you're not. What, what, what you have is a chronic condition. Um, and that, that was a very hard thing for me to hear. I understood it, but it made me furious. Um, and I didn't want to be in therapy for life, but I've chosen to be. It isn't that I have to be. It's that my life is better because I have been. And, uh, you know, I, I use, I started off with Dr. Hamilton with weekly appointments uh, for a long time. And then uh, it progressed to every two weeks. And then actually I moved away. And so I worked with him exclusively over the telephone for several years. Mm -hmm. um, and then after he retired, uh, the new ergonomist that I'm working with, uh, it's a different platform than Skype, but we do therapy much the way I did with Dr. Hamilton, where I'm lying on my bed literally here in my house, and I set my computer up so that I can't look directly at my doctor, but he can see my torso and my face. Yes. And I'm, I'm very surprised, pleasantly surprised, at how effective that is. It, it may be in part because I'm moderately capable <laughs> and I understand what I need, um, but it, it's working quite well. Yes, wonderful. David, I'm curious, were there any moments uh, in your life or in your therapy that, that stood out to you that you'd like to share? Um, thank you. Um, it, it will surprise me, I don't, I don't know about you, but it will surprise me if I can talk about this without getting emotional. <laughs> so here goes. Okay. So when I was three, I had polio. Uh, this was in the mid-50s. Um, and I was paralyzed. I think uh, I was unable to walk. And I was unable to talk. And I was unable to swallow. Wow. And so I was uh, hospitalized at a major 
Metropolitan Hospital. Um, and I was actually tied to the bed. My arms were tied to the rails of the bed. I was on my back. And I was uh, in that position for almost a month. I went from 60 pounds to 30 pounds. And my mother was allowed to visit an hour a day. Um, I, this is a speculation. I don't know that this is true, but I'm speculate that she was probably told not to touch me. Oh. Polio was, uh, you know, a communicable disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was told to wear the same dress every day so that I would know who she was. So that tells me that there couldn't have been much contact between the two of us. Yes. And so being in the bed, tied to the bed, that's my first memories of life. Wow. And I remember vividly the ride home in the car. I was lying down on the back seat because I couldn't sit up. And when I got home, I had to learn how to walk again had to learn how to talk again, and I had to learn how to eat. And the only food I could eat was egg custard. Mm. And so it turns out um, I've had some medical issues that have been chronic, uh, where I've had medical procedures, you know, every six to 12 months. And my lovely wife makes me egg custard for my first meal after I get home from the hospital even today. Wow. So, so that, that is a, <clears throat> uh, an event um, that I didn't, between the ages of probably 15 to 40, I didn't really remember much of it. I, I wasn't aware that it played a big role. Really? in my in who i am it was through uh medical ergon therapy that i got in touch with the the feelings that in part were a result of of that uh, experience Mm. um and you know one of the things that's interesting about uh to me about this part of the story is the good news is my polio wasn't my mother's problem or her fault. And it wasn't my father's fault. I'm sure lots of people have events and stories where, Oh, my mother did it or my father didn't do it or or whatever. This is kind of neutral. The analogy would be COVID. Right. Um, And, uh, it, it's it's still difficult for me to talk about this, um, and it is clear to me now that I must have learned how to survive in that environment, and I think in part because of the paralysis, the this this my physical therapist who's helping me with my shoulder. Mm-hmm. just told me the other day that <laughs> there is two different kinds of nerves. One, the motor nerves, 
and then the other, the sensory nerves. Mm -hmm. So my motor nerves didn't work. I was paralyzed. But the sensory nerves, I think, worked. So I was in pain, but I couldn't move. And so I learned to... And you said you couldn't speak either. I Well, I had a, I had a gastric tube, and I'm guessing I couldn't speak. I, I, I don't know that to be true. It yeah. was bulbar. They called it bulbar polio, where the muscles in my neck and esophagus, and I am assuming the um, voice box is pretty close by, yeah. So it very well, I, that's a speculation as well. <laughs> but you painted a picture of intense emotional turmoil and pain and very little ability to communicate it or to have anyone there to hear it, even if you could communicate it. <laughs> what you just said is drawing up pain and sadness inside me. You can probably hear it in my voice. You can see it on my face. I know the the uh, uh, podcast uh, viewers <laughs> won't see it, but they can probably hear it. Um, yeah, and it's I, my guess is it took me well, it took many years of therapy to recognize what you just said, and I think in I. I learned to disconnect, to not have any contact with the world other than inside my head to survive that experience. Yeah. Um, and from, you had to do that to survive. Yes, literally. Yes. And it probably by the time I was, well, I, when I got home, I had to wear full leg braces and use crutches. I had uh, speech therapy and I had very painful physical therapy. And I just just literally in the last two or three weeks did a little detective work that I was uh, forced to take very hot baths by my mother, probably every day or maybe even more than once a day. And I found a reference uh, to the fact that these baths were supposed to be 104 degrees. Oh, my God. And it's 105 degrees, apparently, where you feel like you're being burned, literally burned. And so I would just scream and fight with my mother. And I can't imagine what it would have been like for her to essentially torture me forcing me into these hot baths. But, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I, I not only survived, I had a full life physically, emotionally. Um, I played squash and tennis my whole life. Um, so all the work that she did paid off. And it wasn't until I was probably... 50 years old that I recognized, started to recognize the significance of this experience in my life. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the, I, 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 I've had a mother and I've had a father. They're both gone. 
Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that they didn't contribute both to, to the good things about my health and some unhealthy aspects of, of who I am. Uh, but I find it interesting to use the, the, the polio as an example because it's neutral. Yes. It's, it's not their fault. Yeah. It, um, what you said about, you know, your life and being one of the lucky ones, I think really says something about you. I mean, there's clearly a strong, healthy drive that you have to live life despite everything you've been through. Uh, um, yes, I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I didn't, it, between the, so by the time I was, so I had polio when I was three. I think by the time I was five or six, I wasn't using the crutches anymore. And I was, you know, um, pretty much back to what age appropriate uh, physicality. Um, and then it turns out that uh, I grew, <laughs> this had nothing to do with the polio, but by the time I was 12 years old, I was six feet tall. <laughs> so, you know, my body, my body didn't come in, into its own until I was probably 15 or 16. Um, and, you know, I went through my teens and 20s and college and, you know, the issue of polio never occurred to me, never came to my mind. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until I was in my 50s after uh, significant therapy with Dr. Hamilton um, that I started to get in touch with the impact that it has had on me and, and still has to this day. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm certain that if I had been in a, a what I'll call a traditional back in the 80s, traditional uh, psychotherapy, I would, would never have had an awareness or dealt with the issues that I've had to deal with anywhere near as effectively as I was able to with uh, orgone therapy. And, and actually now I remember one other thing I wanted to say to you. Uh, my best friend in high school wrote uh, my, you know, the saying about me in, in our yearbook. Um, and he said, uh, if you want something done right, get David to do it. Wow. And so in high school, you know, that, and so you're right. I, I have, in talking to my wife uh, over the years and much more so recently than a long time ago, I, if anything, I have, um, I don't have, let's see, how, to, how I don't know how to phrase this so it'll come out right. I have to fight, as you described it. I don't know how to not fight. Um, and so one of the things that I'm still trying to learn is how to not fight so hard. Um, you know, uh, I asked my therapist a question about my grandson, who's uh, seven, eight years old, you know, and 
is this a behavior I should worry about? And so, you know, he said, David, just drop it, let it go, stop digging in that hole. You know, just just let it go and have fun with your grandson. <laughs> so, you're right. I I have a strong fight to survive, and I have a strong fight in me to become as healthy as I can. Um, and I asked you, can we do this podcast? And that's because I want a legacy. I want what I've learned to, to be left behind after I'm gone, hopefully a long time from now. But um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm still fighting hard. Thank God. Well, <laughs> there are days when I would welcome a vacation. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know what you mean. Is so, there anything you'd like to say about um, your family life, your wife's experience as you're going through therapy, and how I'm, I'm sure that was welcome you addressing your anger or frustration? Well, um, let's see. So um, I there, there was a point in my therapy this is now uh, 25, 30 years ago, when for reasons I'm unclear, um, and I can, I can fill in the, that lack of clarity in a moment, um, but uh, for reasons that I'm un unclear, where I suddenly kind of broke through the clouds as though, wait a minute, now I get it. I, I've, I had some relief that lasted more than not just a few hours or a few days. It lasted a few weeks or longer. And it was as though somebody had plucked me out of my life and put somebody else in it. You know, the things that I used to be frightened of, I wasn't frightened of anymore. Things that used to make me angry didn't make me angry anymore. I, I was having fun. I was uh, more sociable. You know, this 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 time lasted for, I'm guessing, a couple of weeks. And to be truthful, I think it scared the hell about of my wife. It, it was all good. <laughs> The, the the joke in our family is, who are you and what have you done with my husband? Um, you know, so and, and I've I've now had the experience um, countless times where a big change, even if it's good, is terrifying for me. Yes. And so my wife was terrified of my therapy because who who is he and if he's going to change this much now what is he going to do later so um i would Maybe say you touched on something that i don't think i have never heard from another um school of thought or therapy but the idea of pleasure anxiety of functioning well being happy and feeling pleasure and yet it being disconcerting to 
the person experiencing it. I, I certainly have experienced it myself. And literally, the thought that comes to mind is being on a, a business trip in Switzerland a long time ago, um, being um, walking around a town by myself, going into a cathedral, you know, uh, 16th century cathedral or something, and just the awe and experience of it and feeling you know, wonderfully peaceful. And then I walk outside and, oh, you know, it's it's like, it's, I don't know, it's uh, all of a sudden the, the expansiveness and the pleasure is gone and bang, the, the fear uh, comes back. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've experienced that a lot myself. It's basically what I'm describing for my wife. Yes. And the the thing I'll say about my wife that is remarkable, several things. One is she's stuck through this for over 50 years. Well, sorry. Yeah, 50, over we've been married for almost 50 years now. So, um, you know, I she she we were married when my life was miserable. <laughs> It wasn't her doing, it was all, all internal, um, but has stuck through my therapy and uh, voluntarily has been in therapy herself now for probably 25 years um, and is still in therapy. So I, I, I grew up in a, the age of television and Leave it to Beaver was one of my favorite shows I'm dating myself, clearly. Um, and for those who are listening who've never heard of it, you can, I'm sure, find clips on YouTube. Um, but it was, you know, a family of four, a loving mother, a wonderful father who was loving and supportive and always there. And nobody yelled at each other. And all problems were worked out in the last five minutes of the episode. And dad comes home from work and mom is cooking dinner and the children are respectful and quiet and you know that was not my life when i had young children and marriage and a job um but basically therapy has brought that into my life now so uh, my children are gone uh, uh, meaning they're independent they have their own families and children um, and careers and the relationship I have with my wife and my children and my grandchildren is far beyond anything I could have dreamt it would ever be. Nothing like my relationship with my parents. Um, and my wife, I think, would agree that her relationship with our children and grandchildren is, is better than it used to be primarily because of medical orgone therapy and our ability and, and uh, desire to, to keep at it. Yes. David, if you, that, that's so moving to hear. Um, there's another part that you mentioned that I, I would like to highlight, if you will. You, you mentioned basically describing your self-perception, your awareness of yourself, 
your behavior, your emotions, um, how you see yourself and the world around you. Could you describe some of that work in your therapy, your perception? My wife and I joke about the fact that early on in our marriage, she was an optimist and I was a pessimist. Now I'm the optimist and she's the pessimist. <laughs> my perceptions of the world were, I'm, not, I'm, the, I'm never safe. The world isn't safe. People are going to hurt me or they're going to not be there for me. I now see that uh, as an adult, I'm saying, that was my outlook on the world. And when I was, you know, 35 with three kids and a marriage and a job and a mortgage and two cars and uh, you know, professional career, it it just all came kind of crashing down um, at one point. Um, and I realized that if I didn't, this is now, I'm referring back to the, uh, one of your earlier questions about, you know, was there a time when I, something happened, you know, um, I just realized that um, I would either become an alcoholic or get hooked on drugs or I'd end up in jail or my wife would divorce me. My children would be alienated from me. I just I just knew that if I didn't. This is not perceptual. This was behavioral. If I didn't change my behavior, my life as I knew it was over. And through ergonomic therapy, I've come to understand that my anger and sadness and fear were because I misperceived most of what was in front of me. I mean, I can drive a car, you know, I, somebody's walking across the street, I can see them. So this is not the literal visual perception but it's more the emotional perception, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I'll, I'll give you uh, an example that came forward into my, uh, my family, my wife and my children. Um, as a teenager, it turns out um, my mother was an alcoholic. And uh, I learned pretty quickly that after my father went to work, I was the only one in the house. It was my job to make sure the kitchen counter and the sink were absolutely spotless, absolutely perfect. No water droplets, no food, no, just absolutely pristine. And if I didn't, my mother would be very unhappy with me and would tell me so. And so it turns out that when my children were young, I'd get up in the morning and there'd be a dirty dish in the sink and I, I, I couldn't tolerate it. That dirty dish effectively was life-threatening to me. That's how it scared me that much uh, that I just, I couldn't tolerate it. Mm -hmm. And if there's ever a perceptual error is, uh, is is a dirty dish in the sink 
life threatening. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> it's not. How, how did you address that in your therapy? How was that done? Um, uh, we never addressed it literally, meaning we never talked about, okay, Steve, you're going to learn how to tolerate right, right. a dirty dish. The, the way it was, well, and so now my family laughs about this. When I'm here home alone for a couple of days, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner dishes are in the sink overnight, and I wash them the next morning. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm lazy. Why, why, why do them every <laughs> anyway? W one of my strong memories uh, early on after I moved from. Dr. Hamilton's outer office, where we sat facing each other into the treatment room, is that he would, uh, you know, use a pen. I think I mentioned this earlier, uh, and, and have me move. He would move the pen around, pen light, and have me follow it, try and track it with my eyes. Um, and for a long time, I didn't understand the purpose. But there's another exercise that he would have me do, particularly when I was very, very afraid. He would say something like, uh, Dave, uh, slowly look around the room and tell me everything you see. And tell me what its function is. And I remember the first time he did it thinking, what the heck, what, 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 what is he thinking? What could this possibly, how could this possibly benefit me? Yeah. And, you know, it probably took multiple times of, uh, doing this exercise over weeks, months, maybe even years. Sometimes I'm a little slow at, at learning things is that, okay, I see a lamp. Well, what is the lamp for? It's to provide light. Well, it provides light so I can see, I can read, I can uh, not fall down when I, I, I don't trip over this thing. Mm -hmm. What's the door for? Well, it's privacy. There's a lock on the door. Oh, that. So the function of all of the things in the room, including him, he was in the room, was either to keep me safe or it was safe, meaning there was nothing in the room that in reality put me at any risk or any danger. So that helped me realize that my perception that the world is dangerous was inside me. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't really true. So it helped me um, feel safer. It, it wasn't true that the fear was outside of you. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I, I've, on more than one occasion, I've, I've uh, 
had my grandchildren at various times do that. Um, you know, I, one of my grandchildren was uh, panicky, very frightened, and I just said, slowly look around the room, tell me what you see, and tell me what it's for. And she calmed down after a minute or two or three and felt fine. So, you know, it, it, uh, it, it it's remarkable how uh, the, the practice of medical organ therapy is so, in some ways, it's simple, you know, look around the room. <laughs> but it is incredibly powerful. So the way it was dealt with in therapy is by repeatedly enabling the feelings that were behind and beneath the surface uh, to get expressed. And so um, for me, anger has always been up until maybe the last 10 or 15 years, my whole life, anger has been one of my biggest problems. Um, and so one of the things that would was very effective uh, in therapy with Dr. Hamilton was that on the couch after the music or in the middle of some conversation and he does his um, uh, physical release of a spastic muscle group with me, we might be talking and then all of a sudden I will just kind of jump up off of the treatment couch and stand there and he knew that that meant he was going to get, he, he would grab his, uh, I don't know, Taekwondo. Like a uh, foam pad. Foam, well, really, you know, six inches thick, two yeah. handles, you know, the way, you know, and, and he, he, he trusted me enough that I would just pound on it with all of my might until I couldn't hit it anymore. And then I'd go lie down and probably cry, sob, yell. And, you know, I, one of the ways I view it is if you've got a balloon and it's overpressurized and you touch it with a pin, it's going to explode. Um, and you got to let some of the air out. Yeah. And so literally letting the steam out of my anger over and over and over and over again enabled my fear to come up. And then the fear would come up over and over and over again. And, you know, suddenly a dirty sink's not a problem. If, you know, if, if I perceive that I'm safe, then the dirty dish is, isn't threatening to me. Yes. But we, we never talked about dishes. We never talked <laughs> about the sink. Yes. Um, most of the time now, um, I would say 95% of the time, I perceive 
things accurately. One of my wife's frustrations is that I can perceive things that she's feeling. I know she's feeling something, but I can't tell what it is. And I'll ask her, what is it? And she gets annoyed because here I am kind of detecting <laughs> what's going on inside her. Sometimes she doesn't even know that she's feeling something until I ask. <laughs> so, you know, that's the downside of living with the uh, with me. <laughs> You're sensitive. You, you... I'm, I'm incredibly sensitive. I, the polio experience is what I attribute. I, I, I have what I call Vulcan hearing, a Vulcan sense of smell. Um, and uh, my vision is is pretty sharp too, or I can see things that are invisible. And <laughs> I can I can see that my wife's emotions are moving. Um, most of the time, it it, it it's beneficial. Um, and I've it has enabled the the changes in my perception have resulted in improvements in my health, my emotional health. Um, I became a better college professor. I became a better husband. I became a better father. Um, I'm a better grandparent because of it. There's almost no aspect of my life that hasn't been improved because of the work with Dr. Hamilton uh, that I've done over the years. And you know, um, nowadays, if I, you know, if my wife says something and I think, gee, that's that, I didn't like the way that sounded, you know, I'll say, gee, I didn't like the way that sounded. And, uh, <laughs> sometimes she'll get annoyed. And so, you know, we, we don't live in a, a fantasy land. Right. Um, we're, we're people too, <laughs> but it's nothing like, the life that I was living at that time when uh, it was clear that my life was going to collapse if I didn't, Mm. if I didn't do something dramatic. Yes. So David, I'm curious about your work life, uh, what you do for a living and how your experiences with polio, your experiences with therapy have, have affected it. Could, Could we hear more, some of that? So I, I uh, in my family growing up, education uh, was key. Uh, both my parents went to college. My father got an advanced degree. And so I decided I was interested in engineering. I got a bachelor's degree. And at that point, I thought I might want to be a professor. So I got a master's and then a PhD. Uh, I, I spent a few years as a, a postdoctoral research scientist before starting an academic career uh, in chemistry at a large Midwestern state university. So I was an assistant professor. Um, I had to teach. I had to do research. I had to write. Uh, journal articles. I had to write proposals to get money from 
anybody who I could get money from <laughs> in, in order to pay for my graduate students and my equipment and, and everything. And uh, looking back on it now, this is my now I'm in my sort of late 30s. Um, I was afraid of everything. I was afraid driving to work. And that would manifest itself in irritable bowel syndrome, effectively. Um, and then I'd get to work and I'd be afraid when the phone would ring. You know, what have I done wrong now? I had a 15 minute panic attack before every class for 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, and it, my fear meant that I was not able to understand students when they asked me questions. It, it was, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how afraid I am that I'm not going to be able to answer their question. I couldn't even listen to their question clearly. And uh, it affected my writing, you know, uh, it affected the way I thought. Uh, we've talked some about perception. Um, it affected my ability to get research funding. Um, and so there wasn't any aspect of my academic career that my fear mostly uh, didn't make much harder. And uh, I now can say with specificity, I know when I started as an assistant professor, I, I, I know what year I started medical organ therapy. I know what year I won a $7 million research grant. Um, so I can say that it was about six years into therapy that my anger wasn't resolved, but it was diminished enough that I could start dealing with my fear. And some of my fear started to be lowered because I was able to discharge it in therapy. Mm -hmm. And I became a better teacher. I could listen to students and understand what they're saying better. I could have students come into my office afraid they're going to fail the exam and be more empathetic. And instead of saying, well, well you got to work harder, I could find out what they were afraid of and what they didn't understand. And I could explain it to them better. I was better at my writing. Um, and the winning of a multi-million dollar federal research grant back in the late 80s, that was a big deal. That's a lot of money. <laughs> That's a, I mean, it, it, you know, $7 million today <laughs> isn't what it was in the late 80s. Yes. Uh, but back in the late 80s, that was a big deal. I mean, yeah. I mean that didn't quite make the local paper, but, uh, you know, and as a result of that research grant, 
uh, I was able to invent something um, that I'm not going to tell you what it is to protect my anonymity and, and other people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I invented something that turned into a group of patents uh, in the mid uh, to late 90s that uh, formed the basis for a technology that is practiced worldwide today. The, I wish I uh, became a multimillionaire from that invention, but <laughs> as it so happens, that didn't work out. But uh, I get a lot of gratification knowing that uh, the, that I was capable enough and um, my creativity could come forth when it's not buried beneath anger and fear and sadness. So it's hard to be creative when you're afraid. It's hard to do much of anything when you're afraid or right. at least do it well. Right. Uh, and so um, there's no question but that it improved every aspect of my uh, career. Um, you know, I didn't learn any engineering in my therapy, <laughs> you know, I didn't learn how to write a better manuscript in therapy, but orgone therapy took away all the junk that was getting in the, in the way of me being me. And so then uh, turned out I was a lot more successful and capable than I ever thought I could be. Hmm. So, it, um, medical orgone therapy um, contributed maybe, I, I, it's hard for me to say whether it was more or less than my education. So, I had a terrific education, but without medical orgone therapy, I couldn't have accomplished anywhere near the sorts of things that I did. Including yeah. winning a teaching award, you know, a best teacher award, and uh, I, I, I absolutely know that wouldn't have happened. David, this has been a wonderful story. Hearing about some of your life and and some of the therapy, is there anything else you'd like to let the audience know? Well. I was visiting my granddaughter, uh, Sally, who was five at the time, and um, Sally and her mother were home. I was there, and Sally's mother, Ashley, wanted to go out or needed to go out and go grocery shopping, mm -hmm. left Sally with me. And as Ashley was driving away, Sally just lost it screaming, crying, pounding on the big glass door. Mommy, don't leave me. I need you. I need you. You know, don't go. And her mother drives away. And I'm a, a grandfather, so she wasn't my child. Um, and I will acknowledge the first thing I said to her is, oh, don't worry about it. Your mother will be back soon. And if anything, that made the situation worse. Uh, 
Yeah. But my medical Oregon therapy had taught me enough that I could then say to her, you know, you, you must be afraid or are you afraid or tell me what you're feeling. And then she started to scream at me. You know, I hate you, Dave. My grandchildren call me by my first name. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, I hate you, Dave. I don't want you here. Go away. Um, leave me alone. And I was afraid that she might hurt herself. And she ran into her room and slammed the door and started throwing things around the room. I mean, this was a full-blown temper tantrum. Rage, yeah. Rage. And I'm alone in the house. I mean, fundamentally, I think she was afraid. But the fear uh, manifested itself as anger. Mm -hmm. So what the heck am I going to do? So I walk into her room calmly. I close the door calmly. I sit down. She's screaming at me. I hate you. I don't want you in the room. And I sat there and calmly said, I love you. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to keep you safe. You can say anything you want to say. You can do anything you want to do except hurt yourself or hurt me. But anything else you want to say or do is fine. And I'm going to stay here as long as it takes to keep you safe. And she continued to scream and throw things around and eventually started to calm down 10 minutes or so. And eventually um, I asked her, you know, how are you feeling? And she said, I'm really sad. I miss mommy. And I said, it must be really hard to miss mommy. And she cried a little bit and then calmed down. And a different Sally looked at me with a smile on her face and said, hey, Dave, let's go out and play. (laughs) Uh, Needless to say, that was not how things progressed in my house. When I threw temper tantrums at age, whatever. Yeah. And so that's an example for me of how medical ergogon therapy of my own has enabled me to be there for not just Sally, be there for my children, my wife, my grandchildren in a way that I learned through Dr. Hamilton's being there for me. That, that's a wonderful example. And what I love about it is it happens every day. Every day with children, things like that come up. And I think that has become common to, you know, say what you initially said of, of oh, it's going to be okay. And in a moment, then you got it like, wait a second, what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> And I think we can all fall into that trap. So that's such a wonderful example of how your therapy allowed you to be a better grandfather. That's wonderful. Thank you. It, yeah. it, uh, it not only means a lot to me, uh, friends of mine and my wife's have heard this story and are in awe uh, of uh, how that can be possible. 
And and I I feel like I would be misleading the audience to suggest, oh, when my children were five years old, that's how I handled it. No, <laughs> I couldn't do that. I, I wish I'd had medical organ therapy since the age of three. Then there's a chance I might have been able to handle that kind of a situation when my children were five. But I can't roll back the clock. Yeah. <laughs> you described how in your therapy, uh, Dr. Hamilton accepted you and any feeling you expressed was okay. And then that's what you did for Sally. And that's what as parents we can all do. You know, we talk about an in individual therapy how it's not your feelings that get you in trouble, but what you do to get away from your feelings or block them. And and that's exactly what played out between you and Sally. It's not the external, or it's not her feelings, fear, sadness, frustration that would cause her a problem, but it's that external force that would keep her from expressing her feelings, her fear, her longing for mommy, her sadness. Right. And, you know, I... I um I, I will just acknowledge that uh, one, one of my memorable events was being angry at my parents. I've forgotten what I was angry about. I was probably six years old, and my solution was to throw my shoes through the window, through the closed window, mm. break the glass, break the wood, and... Uh, my my father's response was, okay, David, let's go to the hardware store and buy the wood and buy the glass and the putty and I'll teach you how to fix a broken window. Uh, it, it was it was an interesting response, but it didn't I, I didn't get punished, but I didn't learn how to deal with my anger. Yeah. What brought about my need or desire or decision to get therapy? And after my polio, after I recovered, I was just an angry young child and would be angry at my parents, angry at my brother, angry at my friends. And my anger wasn't just verbal. It got physical sometimes. And it caused some serious issues that if it if I wasn't able to bring it under control, could have really changed the course of my life. And this was, I'm talking about when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Mm -hmm. And somehow I was able to get it under control enough that it wasn't a problem between the ages of 10 and probably 25 or 30. But uh, at a point in my life when with family, job, house, the, the life I had always uh, dreamt of, my anger became an issue again. Um, and I realized that I had to uh, do something dramatic, something significant 
find a, a therapist or a therapy that would let me or would help me figure out a way to get my anger under control. And so my anger was one of the reasons I sought out therapy. Um, and one of the unique attributes, at least from my point of view, of medical organ therapy is that I could—I was allowed to, so long as I didn't hurt myself, hurt Dr. Hamilton's office, or hurt Dr. Hamilton, I could get out my anger physically however it w would work for me. I could scream, I could hit, I could pound the uh, treatment couch, I could hit it with a baseball bat, I could punch this karate bag that he would hold, I could scream at him, I could say anything I wanted to, uh, no matter who I was angry at. And what I learned um, after a number of years of therapy is that my anger would always rise to the surface first and it would cover sadness and fear that were much deeper down. Mm. And now that I'm 70-ish, I would say my anger is no longer an issue in my life. I can get sad when I need to get sad. I can cry when I need to cry. Fear is something I'm now dealing with I can tolerate it, but I need help. Um, and so I've still got work to do. <laughs> but the medical ergonomy has enabled me to, in essence, eliminate lifelong problems of, of anger. David, maybe you could say something about, <clears throat> for listeners who, who don't know much about medical ergonomy therapy, the fact that... Um, You've been in it for a long time, and so often when we think of treatments for um, emotional problems, we think of eliminating symptoms, and uh, you might be in treatment for a short period of time or a longer period of time, depending on the problem. But maybe you could say something about your journey over the years and, and how you see that. Yeah, I, I, my problems started after my polio uh, hospitalization ended and I went home. Um, so at the earliest memories of my childhood, anger has uh, been a problem. So it's been a problem my whole life. Um, and I didn't seek treatment until I was in my mid thirties, late thirties. Um, and by then, I now know those problems were chronic. Um, they had existed. Uh, they were severe enough and had existed long enough that while medical ergonomy has transformed my life, I still have problems with anger. But today, my problems with anger are once a, once a week, once a month, 
my feelings will build up and I'll feel angry and I can discharge my anger in a way that doesn't hurt me. It doesn't hurt anybody else. I don't hurt any property. I simply ha have a safe, functional way to discharge my anger. And I can do that with my sadness and I can do it with my fear. Um, my fear, I, I'm much better at the discharging my anger and my sadness than I am my fear. That's, that's the last episode in, in my story. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, a, uh, the reality is I had a situation today I, uh, polio was so traumatic for me that it damaged me emotionally and has taken a lifetime to uh, learn how to deal with and improve those emotional problems. It's only been in the last five to ten years that I've really been able to literally address the polio. Ten years ago, I couldn't use the word polio. I, my, my throat muscles would clamp down. I'd start to cry. Mm. I couldn't even utter the word. And um, I, my wife reminded me this morning that I have a book that she bought for me uh, almost 10 years ago. And the book is titled Post Polio, A Guide for Survivors and Their Families mm. by Julie K. Silver. She was, a, I think, a pioneer in uh, the post polio syndrome, um, researching it, understanding it. And um, so I started reading this book this morning and I got to a particular paragraph and I started to cry. Uh, the paragraph was a description, a, a generic description of what it was like for young children, two or three years old, to be tied to a bed, uh, fed through a nasal tube, little contact with parents, uh, hospital staff not really well trained in how to uh, comfort uh, young children in very traumatic situations like that. And I started to cry. I cried for a couple of minutes and then stopped reading. And about two or three hours later, I had a muscle group uh, in my chest uh, where my solar plexus is, and it started to tighten up, and, um, and it was very painful, meaning just the spasm mm -hmm. in my solar plexus without touching it. It really hurt. And my medical orgone therapy has taught me, oh, that means I've either got sadness, fear, or anger that is stuck. 
And um, if I can't discharge whatever that feeling is, the the muscle spasm is going to get worse, and I'm going to I'm going to suffer. Um, and so I know that uh, that needed that meant that I had a lot more to get out. And so I went to my bedroom and I lay down and I started to cry, and then I started to sob. And I did some yelling, um, and that lasted for maybe 10 minutes. And then it took me, I'm 70 years old, I, that takes, a, th that process for me takes a lot out of me. So I sat on the edge of the bed for a couple of minutes before I got up. And I felt fine. <laughs> you know, I, I read something that was traumatic. It made me very sad. I'm feeling sad right now. It made me angry because, because of the polio and because I never received the treatment that medical orgone therapy can provide a young child, I've suffered my whole life. And this is a perfect example of something that happened to me 67 years ago, and it wasn't anybody's fault. Right. It, was, it was polio, it was a virus. And I'm still at the effect of the trauma that I had back then that never got dealt with uh, properly. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. One, one of the things that, um, that, that I would like to talk about briefly is contact. Um, and it's something that I'm still learning about. Um, and what we talked about earlier in my experience in the hospital with polio, you know, I, I think to survive, I voluntarily, I really didn't have any other choice, I, I disconnected. I broke contact with my body and the world. And it's my assumption that most, perhaps many, hopefully most, babies when they're born, if there weren't traumas during the pregnancy or at birth, are capable of contact. And I don't know if I was or wasn't. I was born in the 50s. Uh, and uh, in in the world we lived in then, and there were things about that world that are better than today's world and vice versa. But let's suppose that I was born with the ability to make contact with the world and my emotions. I lost that as a result of my polio. There may have been other contributing factors, 
um, and therapy has enabled me to make contact with myself, my feelings, who I am, who I want to be, who I don't want to be, um, and contact with the world. Um, and I, as I say, there's, there isn't any aspect of my life that I think hasn't been improved because of my ability to tolerate contact with the world and, and my feelings. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are some times, uh, there are some, uh, I, I'll, I'll just mention, you know, we, we have a number of wonderful grandchildren ages sort of 19 to five. So it's a pretty big spread. Mm -hmm. And therapy has enabled me to uh, get closer to and enjoy my grandchildren more than I otherwise would have. And one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is uh, my eldest grandchild will be in college soon, and I'm hoping one day she'll listen to the podcast. She's expressed an interest in becoming a physician. And if I had my life to do over again, I would become a physician and become a medical organist. Um, so. If that's not a legacy worth leaving, I don't know what is. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs>